tie a couple of things together here and then throw out a question. So we have animals and humans are networks themselves in and unto themselves, yes. but also their hierarchies, right? Human hierarchies, animal hierarchies. This is another network sure. structure, which um, I guess, depending on the species itself, I'm thinking of like, you know, Peterson has the example about lobsters in a hierarchy where like the biggest, brutish, strongest lobsters on top of the hierarchy. That's well, not the yeah. same in modern human hierarchies. Fortunately, we, you know, we try to promote the most competent or, or whatever. Yes. Um, but this structure then is it, and there's something about propagating whatever's at the top of that hierarchy, the singular down into the multiplicity, right? Whether it's like mm -hmm. your heart pumping blood yes. into all your capillaries yes. Or the leader, you know, propagating principles into the human hierarchy or whatever. The that's a that propagation is economized through fractal architecture. It seems Correct. like, and that that would be the sublinear you're describing, right? It's you know you can yes. So one yes, it it doesn't have to be sublinear, and that's where cities come in. I mean, biology is completely dominated. Right. By sublinear, fractal like power law scaling. That describes with, with exponents in the word I used before of yep. one quarter four. That's right. sort of in the most coarse grained way of looking at the biosphere, that sort of permeates everything. Um, but you can have something called superlinear scaling, yes. which doesn't occur. Uh, almost never occurs in biology. It does at some there one or two places it does occur for various reasons, but overwhelmingly, almost everything you look at is sublinear. The bigger you are, put in in the colloquial language, the bigger you are, the less per capita mm -hmm. or the less per cell. Um, but you could have the opposite. The bigger you are, the more mm -hmm. you have per cell. That's not what happens in biology. Um, but it is what happens in cities. And I is know if you the, want to make yes. Yeah, I, I want to ask, is the, is the difference there because biological organisms are closed systems or is the cities an open system? Are we back to that notion? Uh, I'm not sure that does play a role. Okay. Um, I, I think that goes to the difference. Uh, I've not thought about it in those terms, but uh, what it does go to is the nature of the fundamental network. In biology, it's always trying to minimize energy mm. from this viewpoint. Mm -hmm. you know, energy loss, it's minim you know, yep. that your heart has to, you know, you want your heart to do the minimum amount of work, as I say, so that you can allocate maximum energy to sex and reproduction, right. and, and, and also, it turns out, to live longer. Yeah. Um, but um, that's not the way certain aspects of social systems work. That is certainly not the way um, there are aspects. And in fact, a whole aspects of cities is biological and has yeah. this kind of sublinear behavior that it needs to be efficient. I mean, transport systems, you want to be efficient and are efficient right. and so on. So that if you look at cities and you ask, if you double the size of a city, uh, the length of the roads, the length of all the roads, do they all double? Which you might naively think. No, they don't. It's yeah. like biology. Um, 
if you double the size, you don't need twice as long the, the length of the rows. You actually need um, um, only 85%. So it's different, only difference in biology in terms of its infrastructure is it's 85% instead of 75%. Right. Um, but that permeates all infrastructure of cities. You need only eight, with each doubling, and that double could be from, you know, um, 100,000 to 200 or a million to 2 million or 10 million to 20 million. Every time you sustain sort of power law, soft similar behavior that is occurring. But that's not just the roads and the transport system. It's true of the electrical lines, the gas lines, the water lines, the number of gasoline stations, and so on. You do not need twice as many gasoline stations in a city twice the size. You only need roughly 85%. And we looked at data across the globe. It's true across European countries. It's true in China, in Japan. It's true in Latin America. It's sort of universal. It's kind of remarkable. Wow. So it sort of mimics biology, yeah. except the savings is 15% rather than 25%. So that's sublinear and it's economies of scale. Yeah. And the bigger yeah. you are, uh, the more efficient the city is. And that's great. But a city is not just its infrastructure, despite the fact that, you know, when, <laughs> when yeah. you use the word city, you think of skyscrapers or, huh. you know, uh, boulevards of Paris or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, you think of the physicality of the city. But the, the essential part of the city, of course, it's not that. The central part of the city is people. And that's right. the whole point of a city. And cities, uh, you know, we've evolved cities in order to, and this is the crucial point, facilitate and encourage um, social interaction. That's right. the whole point of cities. In order to create wealth, to encourage entrepreneurship, to create ideas and to innovate in order to increase standards of quality of life. Right. There's this unbelievable machine that we evolved that is probably the most um, uh, wondrous machine that we have created, namely the city. Right. And it's been enormously successful. It encourages that by bringing people together, both in formal settings like, you know, uh, lecture halls and universities and big office buildings and theaters and sports stadiums but also informally you know in city squares and parks and coffee houses and so on that's the whole thing bring them together and this aspect is crucial of cities and it has a different characteristic the biological networks because the crucial thing about social networks is that we um, we have positive feedback. We, ah, right. we encourage it. You know, I you know if there were <laughs> you know A talks to B, B talks to C, C yeah. talks back to A, and we build on each other. I mean, you know, we we build network on effects, people. something like that. The network of man, we yeah. we create yeah. ideas. Of course, yeah. almost all those ideas are irrelevant and no one cares about. <laughs> but the but, but that dynamic, that positive feedback. And then the network creates the theory of relativity or an Amazon or right. Google or Toyota. That's yeah. where it comes from, uh, you know, symbolically at least. Is, yes. uh, and, and, and so it's this incredible machine that does that. And 
Here's the point I'm getting to. It creates, instead of sublinear behavior, sublinear scaling, the bigger you are, the less per capita, mm -hmm. now it creates superlinear behavior. The bigger you are, the more per capita. Mm -hmm. So the bigger the city, the more social interactions per capita, therefore the more ideas per capita, um, and, and therefore you know, the more wealth per capita. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's why New York is the greatest city in the world. <laughs> yeah, was, <laughs> the best. was, maybe still is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, uh, yes, yes, yeah. I, we're, we're, at a, we're at a cusp at the moment, who the hell knows. Right, but, no, but that, that speaks really to perhaps the potency of the digital age too, right? We have this yes. digital city of, you know, near Absolutely. infinite density or, is one proper way to think about this perhaps then that transaction costs are scaling sublinear to network size because i'm thinking about the wells liver cell working less hard I'm yes. less hard than my own i'm also thinking about we don't need as much we don't need as much mileage of road in a larger city than you do in a smaller city so when i you, you use the word savings earlier Right? There's, this, there's yeah. an economic or energetic savings occurring. Yes, exactly. Is that what's happening? So transaction costs are scaling yeah. sublinear to network size? Yes, it can. Yes, that's, a, that's a one way of talking about. Absolutely. Interesting. Yes, absolutely. Because and, that, uh, that ties of, directly into markets, by the way. You know, it's like absolutely. the larger the market, the more wealth into, it produces. Absolutely, yes. And it also ties into the function of companies. Mm -hmm. And the question, one of the questions, that we've just begun to uh, think about seriously. In fact, uh, to our surprise, we got awarded a very large grant by the National Science Foundation, Foundation to look at, which is related to this. Um, and maybe we can come talk a little bit uh, later, possibly. And that is the question of um, administrative costs. Mm. You know what? Um, which is sort of related to some of these questions, bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and we got into this, this is again a tangential comment. We got into this couple, uh, myself and one of my colleagues, colleagues named Sid Redner, were sitting around uh, talking and bemoaning the usual bemoan that, you know, bureaucracy is killing us. There's, mm -hmm. you know, why does, you know, the government is too much bureaucracy, but all these bloody companies have too much bureaucracy and drives you nuts. Can never get anything done. And, so on. and then we started talking, and it came out, you know, we thought, well, how do we know it's too much bureaucracy? What is the appropriate amount of bureaucracy? Maybe the government has, in order to do the things it has to do, whatever it is, the company uh -huh. or the government or the university or whatever the organization is, maybe actually um, it, it's sort of the right amount, given that it has to deliver all these things. And then the question comes up, how would you, could you imagine developing a science of that, that you could ask, what is the optimum size of the bureaucracy for a given set of functions? You know, yeah. can we, you know, maybe it's crazy. Maybe we can't answer that. <laughs> anyway, we, we wrote a proposal, which eventually got funded. Amazingly, we were amazed <laughs> uh, to, um, try to answer that question, because it's the question, how much control mechanism do we need? It goes to, our, by the way, it is related, I suppose, which I never thought about, 
to our pre-recording conversation mm -hmm. about libertarianism yeah. and government control and so on. Mm -hmm. Because it's clear you need some government control, but you know it can kill you mm -hmm. um, right. uh, in many ways. Uh, and you can't have just totally openness, you know, <laughs> everybody just doing arbitrarily. I don't, I'm going to drive on the left-hand side of the bloody road whether you right. like it or not, you know, so, you know, making a ridiculous example. No, so the question is, is that, can you sort of come to grips with that in a sort of more rational way, uh, rather than, you know, most of our reactions to these things are sort of intuitive, um, and, but maybe it's impossible. So it's a, it's a question, we may find that we actually can't make progress, but yeah. it is related now to this question of efficiency and um, things like transactional costs, bureaucratic costs, and um, you know, and its relationship to um, what is it that the system is trying to do? Yeah. What is it trying to optimize? Right. Yeah. So that okay. Let me ask you about that real quick, and then come back to what you're just talking about. The optimization you describe is that navigating the trade-off of efficiency and redundancy because i'm thinking well, about you can, you can have a super efficient network that's just like you know what i'm thinking of just a centralized ledger here where you update one database and it's done or you can have the decentralized ledger right. that's much more redundant and therefore robust to to um i guess you could say dishonesty even i'm, I'm kind of using a bitcoin analogy here but there's a lot more energy involved with that but there's some middle yeah. way between centralization and decentralization. Is that what the fractal architecture is trying to optimize for? Well, I don't know. I, I, I don't know the answer to that, uh, to tell you the truth, because uh, I hadn't been thinking really in those terms to this new project came along mm. and putting it, which was my, and this project, by the way, one of, one of its questions is that whole question just raised, central control versus totally decentralized. I mean, mm -hmm. how, you know, can we make models of that and can we discuss when it's, when you need it, when you don't, when mm -hmm. it's uh, so on and so forth. And by the way, it's not just about social systems. This, this project is also related to biological ones. Cell, you know, how the cells work. They have, yeah. you know, genes that control things and so mm -hmm. on, but they also have freedom of movement to some extent mm -hmm. and so on. So it's again, so this is very much an incipient uh, project and is and is just a work in progress. It just we just got funded, and so we've only had a couple of meetings. We've done some work, uh -huh. and we've done we we've collected data on uh, you know uh, the number of managers in <laughs> various organizations, in various government agencies, in universities, and so on. And and one of the problems, again, this is just a side comment that makes much of this work uh, very challenging apart from the conceptual questions, is getting data. It's mm -hmm. very hard to get data on the things that you would want, on you know, number of managers and what they're doing. And most importantly, what is the social network of a company? Mm. You know, I mean, if you ask a company, and I, we have done, I've done this because I've been involved with companies, uh, you know, give me, what is your social network? And they hum and ha, and then they send you the organization chart, which is sort of, <laughs> you know, 
Well, it has some meaning, of course, but what you really want is, you know, what are the nodes and links between right. people and who are the important people? So you'd like, you know, what you'd like is all the emails that are flowing and, right. and the telephone, and, and, you know, and of course, ideally, uh, you know, what was talked about, well, obviously you can't get that. Yeah. But you, you could get, um, if it's scrubbed and, you know, um, sort of, um, devoid of uh, names and so on, um, the, 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 the social network as defined by email traffic and right. uh, telephone calls and text messages and so on. They, they could get that and they have that, some companies, but they don't use it, huh. which is nuts in my opinion. Yeah. And we'd love to get hold of such data, but it's very frustrating that we have very little access to that. Mm. But anyway, yeah. that's sort of my comment to it, but you need that, of course, ultimately to really uh, develop a serious model, serious theory, and understand these concepts and these, these very deep questions uh, at all levels of society, including the whole society itself about centralized versus decentralized, right. so on and so forth. Yeah, the point's well taken. It's hard to get legibility of social interactions, right? Because there's... We're all communicating to greater or lesser extents and across so many different media. It's probably really hard, I can imagine. Sure. Um, let me ask you that. So this is sort of going back to something you said earlier, but then we'll use it to springboard forward. You mentioned the tree analogy. So if you double the size of a tree, you've scaled its volume, you know, by a dimension yep. of three, I think, as you said, which is pr mass proportional to volume. Is then the limiting factor on just using the tree as an example, it's the, it's the tensile strength or the, um, I don't know if that's the right term, maybe structural integrity of wood itself. So if you gave a tree a harder wood, it could grow larger. Is that what a redwood tree versus a, an oak tree is, something like that? So, okay, there's several points here, but they're very good, very good. So. Uh, as I said, Galileo was the first person to ask the question and to realize the power of, in this case, a rather simple scaling argument, that the weight that you have to hold up has a dimension three, mm -hmm. so and increases much faster, faster than the strength of the trunk, which only goes as, this, as a dimension two, it's proportional to the cross-sectional area. And here he pointed out immediately what you just asked he said therefore if you do want to have a taller tree you've got to make some make it out of something different you know you and indeed we've done that i mean we invent we just you know we we've uh, so to speak invented concrete and so yeah. on and we've built trees they're called skyscrapers of course yeah. <laughs> but we have to so you have to make <laughs> out of different material but also he pointed out you have to also potentially change the engineering design or the architecture. Mm. Um, so, so uh, you know, another classic example is, you know, to cross a small stream, you might, well, a small enough stream, you just need a plank of wood. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, a wider one where you have to build a very a bridge made of wood, it's fine, and uh, with the little supports and structure and so on. Uh, but to scale that up to the San Francisco Bay, uh, mm -hmm. 
you have to change the material. You better make it out of, uh, you know, steel and concrete and so forth. But you also have to change the design. You have to have a suspension wheel. Mm. So there's a very good example. And, and Galileo realized that 500 years ago. And I think that is still remains the very essence of, of uh, in terms of engineering and in terms of, um, you know, within industry and so on, what you have to do when you scale. You have to, there's two possibilities, change the design or change what you might call the material. And, um, uh, you know, that's, uh, it's like natural selection. You know, you can, uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> birds only have a limited size because of, uh, you know, they, 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 there's only so much strength that you can put into those wings right. the weight they have to keep up. And so, so you, here's, a, here's a speculative way of thinking about it. If, if there were, you know, to, to have birds, you have flying things that are enormous, you have to first evolve human beings and evolve their brains so that they can innovate and be clever, and hmm. then they make aeroplanes, hmm. which are big birds, you know, so in order to get something bigger than, I don't know, whatever the biggest birds were, pterodactyles or whatever they were, <laughs> yeah. you know, to get something the size of, um, you know, uh, you get something the size of a 747, but you need to have human beings first. Wow. That's okay. Interesting. But, uh, you know, it is a big bird. I mean, we call it a big bird sometimes. Yeah. Um, so, but I want to go back briefly. I just want to correct one thing or add something. Um, the limiting factor uh, for a tree, mm -hmm. specifically a tree, is not just Galileo's argument, but it's also, it turns out, to do with the network itself. Mm. The network, because the network has to bring... Uh, has to bring um, fluid mm. up through the tubes in the tree. You know, a tree oh, is right. a fiber bundle. And, and it turns out the flow of that, coupled with the fight against gravity, right. which is, is, is actually what limits the size of the tree. It's the hydrodynamics uh, of, of the flow coupled with the problem of gravity. And it's a combination of the two of them that gives rise to trees not being not being able to be more than several hundred feet high i mean the redwoods are right giant I, I imagine there's some relationship here to like the structure of a giraffe right where it has to pump the sure. blood to its head absolutely yeah absolutely but it's true of the whale also i mean you can ask the question um you know how big a mammal could you be hmm. and uh it's probably true that, uh, that, that you can have a mammal, there have been mammals bigger than an elephant, mm -hmm. a land animal bigger than mm -hmm. an elephant. Um, and I forget the name, but it's got some curious old name. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but um, uh, it, it's, it then reaches um, a maximum size, a land mammal is probably something like the Tyrannosaurus rex or something, mm -hmm. something of that size can't hold itself up and can't run fast enough to get enough food and so on and so forth has to be able to move yeah. and so on and so um you know to 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 get something bigger than that mammals solve that by going back to the ocean that's yeah. the whale of course because 
then you don't have the constraint of gravity. Right. The, you know, the, the, the buoyancy of the water gets rid of it. And then you ask, well, having gone back to the ocean and relieved ourselves of the constraints of gravity by using buoyancy, how big is there any limit any longer? Right. And the answer is yes. And that limit turns out to be because, again, to do the network problems, wow. that what happens is that um, as this thing grow, as we grow, turns out the optimization of this network in terms of the stuff we talked about earlier, um, you can determine that um, the distance between capillaries at the end of the network actually has to grow exceedingly slowly. Hmm. Um, which is fine, and it does. I mean, uh, the distance between capillaries in a whale is slightly bigger, but predictably and measurably bigger than it is in an elephant, and that's slightly bigger than ours. But it's very small. But eventually, what happens as the distance between them gets too big, the capillaries can't supply the cells that are between them. And so that puts a limit, you know, you can't pack, uh, you, there's a limit to how many cells you can pack hmm. between the capillaries as they're spreading apart. And it's the same with trees, you know, think of it as trees, you know, when you typically, um, the bigger the tree, the sort of more sparse at the top it yep. is. Right. And that's how we are as mammals in terms of as we go from the mouse to the um, to the elephant, to the whale. So eventually you stop. So it's very likely that the blue whale is the biggest mammal that could ever evolve. Hmm. And it's the biggest, and by the way, most people often don't realize this, the biggest animal, the biggest object that has ever evolved in terms of life is the blue whale. Hmm. Bigger than any dinosaur, much bigger than a dinosaur. Hmm. Or significantly bigger anyway. Wow. Oh, interesting. So it's really, it's reached that limit of... It's come close to that limit. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Um, it, this just popped into my mind, but I, I've read that populations tend to exhibit some self-regulating effect too, when they reach a certain size or density in an area. Is that related to this? Well, that's an interesting question. There are in biological systems... The answer is generally yes, there's a self-limitation mm -hmm. and it's sort of related to um, this, uh, the sublinear economy of scale, scaling and metabolic rate. Mm -hmm. um, so one thing we haven't talked about is growing mm -hmm. because you could ask it about us. I mean, after all, it's pretty weird that, uh, you know, we're born and we eat we, we we're fed and then we eat mm -hmm. and we get bigger we progressively get bigger and then if you're a human being by the you start to reach 16 17 18 you stop mm -hmm. and then you stay pretty much the same size i mean and you die mm -hmm. i mean there are small changes i mean i get fatter and I'm, I'm at the stage where I shrink a little bit. <laughs> That's my height, and so on. But but you know what I mean. I mean we stay basically the same height, same size, um, and that this network theory explains that beautifully, actually. And it's to do with the reason you stop is to do with the sublinear scaling, because as you scale up, your metabolic rate 
is not scaling linearly. As you double in size as a, as a child, um, your metabolic rate is not twice as big. So the supply to the network is decreasing per cell mm. as you get bigger, but the number of cells is increasing linearly. Huh. So the, the source of energy can't keep up with the demands mm. of the cells and you stop. And you can uh, derive the equations for that and you can uh, uh, derive uh, that, uh, you know, exactly that you grow quickly and then you stop. And right. Technically, that's called sigmoidal growth. Um, and that's great. And so you show that for most, many organisms, most organisms, in fact, follow that kind of behavior, that they reach a stable configuration um, and spend most of their life in that stable configuration. Yeah. There I, are, by the way, just a side comment, there are animals uh, and many fish that actually die before they reach that stable configuration. But most land animals uh, like us uh, stop growing and spend most of our life in this sort of metastable state that we're in. And that, it plays a very important role, both in terms of um, uh, the, the long-term sustainability of life and in terms of what you asked about that the self-limitations mm. of, of a population plays a, an important role in that self-limitation. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I liked, it was, I think this was explained in the book, said human subgrowing in adulthood because the metabolic rates scale at two to the power of three quarters of body yes. mass, right? So for every doubling in body mass, right, uh, the metabolic rate is scaling sublinear. So this means that the demand for energy actually increases faster than energy production. And that puts the so limit on it. Yes. And so yeah. it stops. And so bio biology has is replete with this kind of phenomenon that is self-limiting. Mm -hmm. And uh, and why, you know, and, and sort of a corollary to that is why you know life has been around for two or three billion years you know mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's it's sustainable even though it's continually changing and evolving right and and the challenge the challenge for us in terms of our socioeconomic lives is that uh, we don't seem to be self-limiting or at least that's a big question mark are we self-limiting and it brings to it brings to the fore this very challenging question that uh, this marvelous, um, you know, uh, free enterprise capitalist uh, 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 system that we discovered and has been so enormously successful built into it seems to be the idea that it shouldn't be self-limiting. That is, open-ended growth is what we demand, not, you know, I mean, an, a, 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 a city or an economy that stops growing is, uh, you know, is thought of as unsuccessful and a failure and will lead to collapse. Yeah, so and so me, that's a huge challenge. Yeah, and I think we're starting to segue into the sustainability topic here. And yeah. I, I would like to ask you about this then. So in terms of having this structural integrity or tensile strength, whatever the term would be, it lets yeah. us build something bigger 
up to a point. We still had some network constraint, you know, in the sure. case of the blue well or the, the height of a tree. Right. Um, again, this may be a rough, roughly speaking thing, but I've kind of, I've been viewing the integrity of private property rights as something akin to the tensile strength or structural integrity of these physical substrates. And my, you know, the, the example here would be the US, right? It's the greatest experiment in free market capitalism sure. ever. Basically, we had really strong property rights. We still have relatively sure. really strong property yeah. rights. They're they're less strong with every dollar printed because expanding the money supply is a violation of property rights, but that's another topic entirely. <laughs> is then is there some I guess first of all, is that analogy even roughly correct? And then if so, would it mean that increasing the integrity or strength of private property rights would let us build larger socioeconomic systems? I mean, I think the US is like, it was a great experiment in that regard, but we yeah. we have all of our own imperfections, right? We're not we're not a pure capitalistic society, let's say, even though we commonly say we are, we have a lot of um, inhibitions to capitalism. I'd love to hear your feedback on that because I'm just, I'm, I'm starting to try and put together an argument of like the violation of property rights being coercive to socioeconomic scaling, something to that effect. Yeah, that's a really fascinating question. And it's, I have to say that uh, Robert, that I've not really thought about it in those terms. Um, you know, um, in terms of uh, property rights and the role, I mean, I think associated with that, um, the, if you like, I'll, I'll make it extreme, the sanctity of the individual. Somehow, yes, right. As distinct from the collective. Correct. And, and, and it's, a, it's a tricky, difficult question. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, we, in um, the Western world, I mean, one of the things we've developed in the last couple of hundred years that is no doubt uh, somehow a consequence, I, I'm assuming is anyway, I, I've always assumed as a consequence of capitalism and free market system is the respect for the individual, which you call property right? And it's, it's yeah. I sort of, as I'm talking, I think of them almost as synonymous. They very and much are. Um, and just uh, the life, liberty, and property was kind of like the foundational yeah. principles of Western civilization. Yeah. They're just manifestations of freedom, ultimately. Like yeah. property so, or the fruits of your past freedom. Sure. So that's it. On the other hand, you know, society is a collective, you know, and it has to have collective, some collective behavior. It mm -hmm. has the rule of law, mm -hmm. you know, there's certain things that we all agree on. Um, you know, there's there's grayness to all of this, by the way, obviously. Mm -hmm. There's no rigid boundaries to this. Um, and uh, I, I have not thought about it mm. in this kind, you know, in terms of my work. Now, how I've got into this, uh, and maybe we can defer this line of, of discussion. Um, and let me digress a little bit of how my work has related to it by expanding a little bit on the work that uh, we've done on cities and possibly even companies um, because it does relate to this and that's what got me thinking about it because it's not my expertise of course you know what I, mean? I mean by the way i didn't say this in the beginning 
but you know you introduced me rightly as a physicist and i still <laughs> think of myself that way but you know i'm miles away from what is uh considered traditional physics even though you know the way i think about the world and the work that i do i think of as physics even though it's applied to biological systems ecological systems and now social systems um, but it means that um, i've had to learn a great deal because this is not my training and i've moved into areas that uh, i don't have the background and one of the ways i compensate for that is uh, by working with people in those fields and that's been very useful obviously and one of the great things about being at the santa fe institute is that uh, you know we're all together you know <laughs> you know that is there's there's no disciplinary boundaries and there were you know and I, I talked to anthropologists and economists and uh, social scientists as well as other physicists mathematicians and biologists and so on um, and and, uh, and i think that's important to realize that but it's important to realize and i have to realize my own limitations but it also having said that I give the, the opposite. It gives me great freedom mm. to think in ways that are not somehow uh, tainted mm. by traditional thinking. Right. Or this is the this is the canon. Uh -huh. You know, this uh -huh. is what you're supposed to believe, and so on. And uh, and and I have often said about the biological work, which uh, was very successful, was that uh, had I known then what I know now by, by, about biology, I probably wouldn't have done that work. I needed to know, you know what I mean? I, yeah. I needed to know enough that it was an important, interesting problem and so on. And I had biologists working with outstanding biologists, but, but I didn't have all that garbage and all that uh, you know, baggage uh -huh. that you carry with you, which of course is your strength of your expertise, but it gets in the way sometimes because it, you can immediately you yes. think of some crazy idea you say oh that's obviously crazy we all know <laughs> that that can't be right you know right and of course you anyway i'm sorry so i'm but but that's at work here in terms of now moving into this area that you've opened up mm -hmm. in terms of um, you know if one of the better words centralization versus decentralization mm -hmm. collective versus the individual property rights and so on now i got into it because um, the biology, as I said, those marvelous scaling laws um, allowed us to not only derive with the scaling laws, understand them, but also understand the network. Uh -huh. You know, I talked about that, but the details of the network and so on. And to understand, to take it um, into other areas. Once you have a theory, you can apply it to many things. And, and I already just mentioned it was applied to growth. But it's been applied to sleep. Why does it? Why do we sleep eight hours a night? Why do we sleep? In fact, why do we sleep eight hours a night? And um, you know, a mouse has to sleep sixteen hours a night. Huh. And you probably—I don't know—I made I mentioned in my book, an elephant. How long does an elephant sleep? Three or four. Huh. Why the hell? You know what? The, and we understand that. You know, yeah. for example, it's wonderful. We, you know, we we didn't talk about that. But and and uh, things like that, you know, aging. We talked about aging. Mm -hmm. Why I talked a little bit about why this theory gives rise to the fact that bigger things, big mammals, live much longer than little tiny ones, and so yeah. on. So we have this theory, and it's based on networks. And it was very natural 
to say, look, you look around, this goes back to the beginning of our conversation, cities and companies, well, they have a lot in common with organisms. And in fact, I think of them as life in some yes. form. And also they are networks. Cities are quintessentially networks. Uh, we've already talked about they have uh, transport systems and electrical yeah. systems and they have social networks but so are companies companies also are social networks and so mm -hmm. let's see if we can understand and one of the first things we did when we did this was to ask the question first of all about cities the city scale is new york just a scaled up los angeles mm -hmm. which is a scaled up chicago which is scaled up santa fe well, first you think, well, well, New York doesn't look much like Los Angeles, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, doesn't look much like, you know, Los Angeles doesn't look much like Chicago and so on. Well, but of course, that's very superficial because just as we could have said when we talked about biology, the whale lives in the ocean and the elephant has a long trunk and the giraffe has a long neck. And we walk on two feet and mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. We're all very look superficially different. But the whole point of all that work was to show that at the 80, 90% level, you are a scaled down whale mm -hmm. or a scaled up rat, you know, about anything you can measure. And so the question is, if we look at measurements, things that we can measure about cities, are they scaled versions of one another? And so we did that. We looked, and I've already sort of alluded to that in terms of its infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Cities are scaled versions of one another within an urban system, but also in terms of their socioeconomic activity, mm -hmm. in terms of the amount of crime in a city, the number of patents produced, how innovative the city is, um, in terms of you know number of restaurants and all these kinds of things. They are scaled versions of one another. And I said, in terms of the infrastructure, it's very analogous to biology. It, it, it uh, has this economy of scale with a 15% savings with each doubling rather than 25%. But the crucial part of the city is this socioeconomic part, uh -huh. which is uh, the social networks. And where we what we discovered then, and I did mention it earlier, these are all super linear. The bigger you are, the more interactions, social interactions per capita, mm -hmm. therefore the more ideas, therefore the more patents per capita, therefore the more crime per capita, therefore the more disease per capita. Much better to be in a small town during COVID, during a pandemic, mm -hmm. than it is in a big city, even though in non-pandemic times, if you want a sexy, buzz, buzzy life, a more interesting life in the usual sense, more culture, more access to interesting people, better to be in a big city than a small town. That says nothing about, you know, what your, what your quality of life might be right. or be happy, but just in terms of these measurements, obvious that it's more, and it all is to the same, this is the amazing thing, it's all to the same degree. You double the size of a city, Roughly speaking, you have 15% more um, uh, uh, patents per yeah. capita, 15% more crime per capita, 15% more flu cases or COVID per capita, huh. uh, and so on and so forth. All the good, the bad, and the ugly come together. Why? 
because they're all derived from social interactions. Right. And so um, and that got me into thinking about this question of individuals versus the collective. And that got emphasized by thinking about the growth of a city and the growth of our socioeconomic systems, because unlike in biology, where the bigger you are, you have the less per capita, and that leads to finite growth. The, the thing that was great about this work was that the superlinear behavior, more per capita, and therefore the social metabolic rate uh. is increasing instead of the three quarters, the 0.75 yeah. sublinear, it's now bigger than one, it's yeah. 1.15, it's 15%. You get more, more social metabolic rate, for want of a better word, that leads to, instead of finite growth, it leads to open-ended growth. Yeah. So this was very exciting for us to realize this was incredibly self-consistent. You have this idea of social networks, Positive feedback gives rise to more ideas, more entrepreneurship, more, more innovation. That gives rise to superlinear behavior. The bigger you are, the more per capita. And superlinear behavior gives rise to super exponential growth. You have open-ended growth, which is what we see. So this was mm. incredibly satisfying, but it had two major consequences that are crucial that are sort of <laughs> make you stop and think first the theory also said that unlike in biology where the bigger the size you also have the slowing of the pace of life elephants hearts beat much slower than mm. human cows beat slower than mice the the pace of life increases has to increase turns out and that's what we mm. see and we feel the pace of life we've looked at lots of data to verify that but more importantly that this growth equation this growth open-ended growth gives rise to something which technically is called a finite time singularity hmm. and um, what that means in english is that um, in some finite time with this open-ended growth it's going to become infinite which is hmm. crazy that is hmm. You're going to have an infinite GDP, or you're going to have an infinite right. number of patents produced, or an infinite number of, I don't know, restaurants. It's completely nuts. Right. So that can't happen. And the theory tells you what happens that if you insist on that, you will collapse. Right. And uh, so the system is destined to collapse. And so you ask yourself, how would you avoid that? How did we avoid that? And the answer is, is you recognize that, well, when you say you have open ended growth, of course, you you've done it within a given paradigm or within a given major innovation. Uh, so, you know, in ancient times, we discovered iron or bronze. That's why uh -huh. we said the Iron Age, the bronze, you know, something is sort of fixed and that sets sort of the background culture for uh -huh. how this system is growing and evolving. Well, in more modern times, we have the Industrial Revolution, the discovery of coal and iron, then the discovery of oil, and then, you know, we have uh, more modern times, we invent computers, we have a computer age, now we have an internet age, you know, that was a new thing. And so you realize the way we've avoided the collapse is we reinvent ourselves, we go, we make a major paradigm shift, we make a major innovation, and then we start over again. Uh -huh. So we have this sort of sequence 
of major innovations, paradigm shifts, cultural changes. And the theory predicts that these should come along in a systematic way, but that they should come along in a faster and faster way that the pace of life is accelerating. Mm. So that we now have to make innovations at a faster and faster rate. So, uh, and the question is, can we keep that up? Mm -hmm. So this is all from this collective viewpoint, right? This is all, you know, as a society, as a whole. And the question is that I have struggled with, but I've not, you know, it's definitely something I do not have a resolution of and don't understand, frankly, is the role of the individual. Exactly what you're asking about. Uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> How does the role of the individual, or put slightly differently, the way I came into this is since all this is driven by social networks, does it really matter about the structure of the social network itself at the individual level? Hmm. Which sort of gets to your question does it matter that we have? that we have individual property rights and the role of the individual or not. How much does, how put slightly differently, that's maybe putting it too strongly, to what extent does that matter? Because it obviously matters because it's what's driven, I mean, as you said, the United States, this marvelous experiment has been built on that and has been wildly successful. Right. But, uh, you know, it's coming up against this accelerating pace of life, faster and faster time, driven by the marvels of entrepreneurship and and within the social network. Mm -hmm. How does all this fit together? And that's the big question mark. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big, big question mark indeed. Hey, everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white-label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single-source solution for everything Bitcoin. Um, I, I'd like to say a few things in response to that. So yes, one, I'm sorry, I talked too long. I do, no, no, no. I, I took lots of notes, and I, I hope to add some value to your explorations here. So no. I haven't read a lot of Ayn Rand but I'm, I'm oh, doing yeah. some other series on her and about her. And one of the ah. things she says that makes a lot of sense to me is that all rights are derivative of property rights. Like if you're not able to go into the world and produce something of value and have rights to that thing, then like, if you don't have, if you don't have the right to the product of your own labor, then what other right can you possibly have? 
Um, and you could really, you could look at this quantifiably, like what is someone with zero property rights? That's mm-hmm. someone that's being taxed at hundred percent. So everything they do, someone else is taking, that's a slave. That's what, that's what a slave is, right? A slave is someone with 0% property rights or 100% tax rate, whichever way you want to look at it. So clearly that doesn't work. I mean, it does like we had ancient Egypt and these other, you know, slave systems, but they're not sustainable. And they're not humane, clearly. So, yeah, well, they're certainly, yes, certainly in terms of what we have developed in the last couple hundred years, which is, I don't, this is not meant to be a negative way of saying it. So, the cult of the individual and the rise, or maybe the rise of the individual, Mm -hmm. because until, you know, 200 years ago, the, the, the role of the individual was subservient. Yes. But to your point, which is completely well taken, we have to be subject to some protocol, right? I like the driving on the right hand or left hand side of the road. That's something we have to submit to, to, to get on, to have, you know, harmonious exchange and, and discourse. So I would, I mean, and again, admittedly, my views are libertarian leaning, but I would say that in the same way, in my view, as evolution is scaling up from cells to these collective networks of the whale or the human or whatever else, but the cell is self-similar, right? Across all organism. Yeah, I, I think the individual is essentially the cell of human organization, whether that's a business, a country, yes. whatever you want to call it. So, and then, so what, one of the things you said here, so this, there's this super linear output from cities of, of wealth, ideas, energy, you know, virulence, all these things. So it seems like the trick maybe, it's almost like when you put these things together, it starts to create emergent properties, right? Something that's more than the sum of its parts. That's another way to maybe say the super linear thing. The trick is to put these things together in some type of structure that's strong enough to resist that super linear output, something like it has more structural integrity. Um, because there's, to your earlier point, there's a commensurate increase in entropy, right? So we could say the city's producing more wealth than ideas, but the entropy side of that would be, you know, more COVID cases or crime, sure. whatever. So if you have... And by the way, oh, I was, by I was the way, I just want to start with one thing. Go ahead. You know, so that I often say when I give talks, I talk greater innovation, therefore greater ideas, more, you know, exciting things, but also greater crime because that's also innovative. Mm-hmm. I mean, crime is an innovative process. Right. Um, you know, I mean, and so we have to recognize that. And that is, so, and I call it social entropy. Yes, by the social entropy, yeah. Exactly what you picked up on. Right. I call it social entropy. As is war, right? We have great spurs of innovation in war. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So it's really, I, um, I guess the trick, the punchline that I'm just thinking out loud here is like, if we can create socioeconomic or social systems that have really strong, unbreakable protocols, right? That you don't have to fight over who gets to make the rules as much. Right. There's just like, almost like with gravity or thermodynamics, we don't, we're not debating about that in Washington. Like what should the gravity right. be? You know, it's just, it's a fixed exactly. law. We all abide by it. We all adapt to it. The more we can get the rules of our socioeconomic order to be that immutable, I feel like the 
my intuition is at least that the more wealth civilization could more the sub super linear wealth or output that the city city is capable of we could harness more of it without the system ripping itself apart yes no i agree and i think a great you know that's that's the struggle right i mean i agree with you but it's very you know it's incredibly hard both you know and uh, for you know to come to agreement because sometimes you know you think you have come to an agreement sometimes uh -huh. yeah you know i mean the thing about driving on you know one side of the road is sort of a, an extreme example and obvious mm -hmm. i mean they're pretty obvious that for the collective good and uh, you know uh, in, in terms of you know whatever your politics might be you have to have something like that right but well, you know as you move up to more complex things it becomes not so obvious so i grew up i was born in england um uh, in the beginning of the second world war and uh, i grew up in post-war britain um uh, trying to recover from the war mm -hmm. with a socialist government mm -hmm. you know, Churchill was thrown out in the socialist government and i grew up not knowing anything other than a national health system mm -hmm. and i took it for granted um ironic I'm, amazingly i can hardly believe this until i came to america when i was 20 years old that um you know if you were a citizen you had free education access to free i mean the you know there were obviously there's private schools and so uh -huh. you had free education and free health care huh. and i just assumed here's what this goes to your question about trying to have you know we can all agree on I just assumed that was universal in mm -hmm. my, my total naivete. Right. And I was given a rude awakening when I came to, to America and discovered, yes, they have free education, which was wonderful, uh -huh. um, at least at, up through high school, um, access to free education. But healthcare wasn't, you know, yeah. that it was each, each for his own. Uh, and uh, I was quite shocked at that. Um, and um, so there's an example, you know, there's something where, you know, you know, I, I came from a background where that was taken for granted, mm -hmm. wasn't assumed. And, and in, indeed, in Britain today, even though we, you know, there's a, uh, there have been right wing governments, um, everybody agrees still with the, uh, that state, pretty much the national health system, which is always a problem, I mean, needless mm -hmm. to say. Um, but I understand, and I certainly understand the arguments uh, here. Now I've been I'm an American now, and I understand the arguments pro and con, and why people yell and scream about this and feel so strongly. Uh, you know. Um, Can I ask so, you? Um, have you heard so it's of? It's what I'm saying. You know, from a personal experience, it's highly non. As you well know, of course, it's highly non-trivial. But that's what. But what you articulated is what we want. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's collective agreement about certain things that we can get on with the real stuff of life. Yes. Yes. Just like you said in the organism that it wants to free up its energy for reproduction and child rearing. Yeah, it's like the more right. there's this great quote by Whitehead. It says the more important operations we can conduct without thinking about them, the more we advance civilization. Like we're, no, we're trying to right. economize this network as well. I didn't really, I don't know that quote, but it's great. But, but, you know, I've not thought about it that way, but it's true. The human body, we, your body, has made an agreement. Mm -hmm. All those cells and all those organs are going to do what they need to do, mm -hmm. obeying certain laws, and they're going to do it as best they can, and so on. So that your mind 
can do, you know, can have do a podcast. Yes. And, uh, can know, deal with can, novelty, right? Yeah, deal with new things, novelty, yes. exactly. Yeah. And experience life to its fullest. You know, you yes. do not have to worry. And in fact, illness is when they're not doing the thing properly. Right. Where you could think of it that way, when there's rebellion, you know, the, the heart is screwed up somehow and is plugging right. itself up. I mean, I'm being a bit silly, but no, you know, no, that, that's a great yeah. way to look at it. We, I've, I'm a big follower of Jordan Peterson. He talks often about the, the pathology of hierarchy, right? Which we would call yeah. corruption or coercion or any yeah. of these things. And it's a well, real exactly. problem, you know, it, no, it is. Exactly. And, and it's maybe not even an analogy. Um, you know, this, this term mass psychosis has started to go around recently over the past two years. So, you know, maybe there's really something to it that if you pathologize the hierarchy, you can actually induce psychosis in people or, or in populations. So, well, I think, no, I think there's good evidence. I clearly that uh, you can, uh, you know, people have these, these collective psychoses, mm -hmm. movements, big movements happen. Uh, yeah. can happen very quickly i mean uh you know i mean horrible cases can happen good good things and bad things happen that way yeah you know absolutely I mean, for example i mean it's not a psycho this is stretching it but it's related to you know i remember this is a small thing really but um you know the introduction of seatbelts mm -hmm. seatbelts are introduced no one would wear them and never thought it was stupid and, you know we all just but at some stage, there was kind of a, 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 a relatively abrupt transition mm. where, you know, everybody started wearing seatbelts and felt it was okay, wasn't mm. it? You know, being, I don't know, whatever, I mean, mm. whatever the reason was for not wearing. I mean, I was as bad as everybody else, for sure. <laughs> um, you know, not wearing them for many years. Can um, I ask you, um, sorry, you mentioned about education and healthcare being free. And then you came to the U S and the healthcare healthcare piece was, have you heard of Murray Rothbard? He's like an American libertarian philosopher. No, no, I've not heard of him. No. Is he good or should I read him? I would, yeah, I would encourage you to check him out on your inquiries about the individual. He's almost like an, an Ayn Rand type, but uh, much more. Yeah, I've read Ayn Rand. By the way, I have read Ayn Rand. Mm. I've read a couple of, I read the, the only one I remember is that the shrug. Right. Is that uh, Murray, Murray's similar on the individual, but he comes from the Austrian school of economics. So uh -huh. one of the things he would say, and I, I, I've only read him, I've never talked to him. He's, um, he says that free education, free healthcare, right? It's not actually free. It's it's being paid for by tax dollars. Oh, sure. And taxation is like a non-mutual exchange, what he would call <laughs> theft. So again, back to that yeah. idea of getting social entropy out of the system as much as possible like that's one of that's one of the biggest issues in the world is you you can't even hedge against that form of risk you know there's there's not really a way to do it inflation's another one that's that's pretty bad but um, i'll just say that i'm glad we came to an agreement that there's at least a need for like a political fixed rules to to build up society yeah, more well, robustly because that's what ultimately um, i'll only leave it at one bitcoin mention for the show but that's what bitcoin is really it's like it's apolitical fixed rules yeah. that nobody can change so 
a lot of Bitcoiners think it's really important for the world. Like it's incorruptible money or incorruptible economic system, something like that. So yeah, because it's uh, it's, it's outside of the normal control mechanisms that yes. uh, were imposed on 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 the exchange of money in particular. Yes, it's immune to social entropy, to use your term. There's no yeah. no one can do anything about it. No one can pass yeah. a law. No one's opinion. Nothing yeah. can change it really. So. Um, yeah. Interesting in no, that way. Interesting. I'm, I'm, you know, I mean, I, I've not invested in Bitcoin. I, I, as I say, I don't still understand it. I mean, I understand, of course, the concept. Mm. I don't quite understand yet um, how it really works and what the mechanisms are and what really causes fluctuations and and what it's and, and more so to the point maybe you're bringing up conceptually what are its long-term implications mm -hmm. and so on i don't know i've sort of avoided it really even though i have friends i mean that uh, you know big been big investors in bitcoin make huge amounts of money which maybe yeah. i should have done. i was advised <laughs> to do it i would be a rich man now <laughs> I'm, I'm so hopeless i'm i'm so hopeless with money that, uh, <laughs> I'm, uh, you know, it's, I seem to have a huge blind spot uh, about it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to me about money because I, I sometimes, you know, uh, I'm always amazed at how people have blind spots about mathematics. Mm. I know, you know I, mm -hmm. uh, that they, as soon as you start doing math, they sort of fall apart. Right. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. And I understand, of course, that's very common. But I'm like that with money, which is interesting. <laughs> you know, I just go, I, I glaze over my, I don't know what it is, I'm hopeless. <laughs> I, I, my, it's amazing that I'm still the uh, sober. Now, uh, now I understand why you said you were worried about me asking you something about money. I was, I was. I was. <laughs> Jesus Christ, this is, my, my, this is one area where I'm truly weak. That's so and, funny. Uh, and I have a, some phobia about, I, um, you know, and I'm lucky in a way because I do have a phobia and I don't understand it. I don't invest. I've lost, I mean, in principle, I've lost a lot of money by not doing anything. Mm. Um, but I'm at ease with it because I have enough. Mm. And so that's another aspect of money, which I find interesting is um, why does one want more? And I've, mm. you know, when I, I was president of the Center Institute and I had to raise a lot of money for good reason, for some of the, mm -hmm. but I met with some very, you know, Truly rich people, and, uh -huh. uh, you know, in the billionaire, multi-billionaire class, very, yeah. very well known, who try to get support SFI and so on. But it was always intriguing to me as to why they wanted. Many, some of them, I would talk about money, and they wanted more. Some of them, uh -huh. and, right. it would, and it was like, Jesus Christ! If I have a billion dollars, why do I want to get two billion? You know, <laughs> I mean, but it was sort of interesting to me because it's so alien to me. Yeah, um, and and so there's that aspect of money, by the way, which is also sort of related to this because it is to do with the individual and their needs and wants and questions of power, yeah. control, their contribution to society, yes, and what they give back and so on. So all these things, they're all sort of interrelated. And mm -hmm. I, I've never, I, I, it's only in recent times that I've started to try to think about it and I can't get my arms around it yet. Yeah, one, I mean, great points there. The one thing I would just, 
I guess to put a button on the property rights discussion, like in a world where yeah, sorry, I, I didn't mean to veer from that. No, 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 I it's perfect, actually. Part of it. Because I what I, it. No, it is. It is very much. And as is my response, I think, is that in a world where property rights were perfected, let's say that the, the violation of property is just not possible at all. Yeah. The super rich guy or girl would be the person that most served the world, right? They'd be the greatest innovators, the greatest entrepreneurs. So people that went out and satisfied the most wants of the consumer yeah. Those would be the super rich. And largely, thankfully, that's sort of the case, right? We have a lot of entrepreneur billionaires, but we also have politicians beating the stock market all the time for reasons that they're not creating a lot of value, you know? So there's, <laughs> it's kind of a gray area still, but um, I would just say, and you know, your intuition about money, like why do people want more? It's, it's a whole thing, but um, I've come to view property rights is kind of like an extension of the territorial imperative. Yes. I you know, think that's right. Every yes. animal wants to expand its dominion. So um, I guess we're just the same. We just have created an institution around it called property. But the collective, but, but, you, but, but it has to be constrained. Yes. Varying degrees. And that's where the, the, the tension is. Yes. With collective in some form or another you know collective behavior and the collective the the you know uh, the needs of the many so to speak in order for yeah. the whole system to fun function in a in a efficient non-destructive way yes and that's the law of course the rule of law is of course, yes uh, uh, an integral part of our of civilization and society um, and, and all law, uh, it, it roots out in property, ultimately. It's about yeah, control over scarce right. resources. Yeah. Sure. So, so these, these are, you know, I don't know. I'm not, as I say, um, I've sort of backed into this stuff and I'm mm -hmm. still struggling with trying to figure out, um, you know, where, what do I really think about these things? And what is, right. or to put it into a co rather, I, I would say rather putting it into a coherent picture. Yes. Where I see how all the all the parts fit together, and uh, you know where are the boundaries, and and more importantly, in a way, are there are boundaries, but um, uh, how flexible are they? Mm -hmm. You know how much can you move those boundaries, um, you know, and have you know from one system to another? Mm -hmm. I don't know. You know, it's it's uh, it's uh, and. You know, look, the United States, uh, um, probably throughout its history, but certainly in recent years, um, has been struggling with this. And I think yeah. the whole Trump thing is a is a version of that, struggling with where is that boundary? Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's, uh, you know, people reacting to, to um, uh, some of the constraints they, they feel uh, you know, in terms, you know, terms, I'll use the word property rights. I don't know if that's mm -hmm. the right word for this, but in terms of constraints and and uh, encroachment on what people perceive as their freedom. Right. You know, I'm, I'm you know, I'm not a libertarian and I'm not a Trump supporter, um, but I'm not a socialist either. Right. I don't know where I'm sort of somewhere, I don't know where I'm somewhere, probably if, you know, if I were to ask, I don't, you know, this is, I'm, I'm probably left of center. I'm sort of uh -huh. traditional 
I sort of sit as a traditional, in, within the American system, yeah. traditional Democrat, which hardly exists. None of these things exist anymore. Right. Like, bypass, they've all bypassed me. Yeah, well, it's a mess today, so I don't, I don't know what to call anything. Um, even, yeah, even when you say, like, so traditional Democrat or traditional liberal, you know, yeah. liberalism used to mean low to no government. And now today yeah, it, it means the most no, in England, I grew up, you know, and when I grew up, uh, there were three parts, there were two major parties, uh, the, of course, the conservative in England, I mean, in England, when I grew up, uh, the conservative Tory party, uh, and then the Labour Party, which was also a socialist, had a big socialist element, mm. and then the old Liberal Party, which in the, uh, up to the First World War, had been a major party in England. And it stood for exactly as you say, it was sort of, it had libertarian views, actually, even though it was the word liberal. Mm. But it also had socialist views, as some of my libertarian friends have too, which always amazes me. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> so let's do this. If you could just let my audience know where they could find out more about you or your work, and sure. then I will send you a schedule invite after this for another session. Okay. Sure, very good. So let's see, I'm, uh, you know, the best place to find out about my work is, you know, sort of free, ad shamelessly advertise my book, is to read my <laughs> book. It was written, I didn't talk about the book per se, thank you. And there it is. <laughs> there it is. is that uh, it was written um, to, for various reasons, but one of, of course, primary to, um, try to give an exposition of my own work and my own thinking and some of the ideas and to really tr try to promote big thinking about big problems and to promote thinking through a scientific lens as, as much as one can. And it was done uh, also with the premise that I could do it without writing a single mathematical equation, mm -hmm. which was extremely challenging since much of it is based on mathematics. Um, but it was intended for a lay audience, um, and it has been, and it's, it's done very well as a book. But um, I, it is, and, and, and one of the things I tried to do in the book was not to pull things out of the hat. Mm. When I wanted to try to explain something, I wanted to also tell you what an exponential is. Mm -hmm. you know, because I discovered that people use that term but they actually don't know what it is and more importantly, what it implies, right. uh, you know? And so uh, there were things like that I tried to do. And so it's, I think a lot of it is, um, um, I hope is a relatively easy read, but I think some of it is quite dense, even though it's in English, <laughs> it have mathematics. And, you know, you have to think, in other words, it's not, you know, yes. you do have to sort of think and maybe reread a sentence here and there too, you know, <laughs> you know, and I understand that and it's a big book and you might want to miss stuff, but it is, you know, if you're interested in any of this stuff, um, it, it's there and there's references in it for people who want to dig deeper. Um, I, I'm, I'm open to receiving messages um, uh, from uh, my email, um, but um, I'm, I may be slow in responding and I may not respond. I can't promise to respond because I get a lot of emails and so on, but I will try. I do try to respond. 
um, and I'm happy to carry, and carry on dialogues. Wonderful. Yeah, the book is quite readable, um, you know, given the, the subject matter, which is very sweeping. Um, I think you did a great job. Uh, I encourage everyone to check it out because you're, I mean, there's a through line here, right? It's you're, you're coming straight out of inorganic physical reality and tying together life and then the organizations of life. It's, it's really interesting. Um, so yeah, Jeffrey, thanks so much for coming on and we'll have you on again soon. Okay, Robert. Good. So I look forward to hearing from you.